This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program in the second and third segments is Mr. Michael Pento. If you watch any of the news programs, you've undoubtedly seen uh, Michael as a guest financial commentator. Uh, He is a returning guest to the program, and we're going to get his take on the Fed's newly stated policy that they're going to let inflation run a little bit hotter. I talked to you about that on last week's program. And uh, also going to get his forecast for the markets and uh, what you might be thinking about now in your 401k and IRA. I want to also invite you, if you've not yet visited our website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, I would encourage you to do that because available there for download is the Your RLA app. And once you download this app, you'll have access to our weekly newsletter titled Portfolio Watch. You'll be able to access the podcast version of this radio program. And uh, you will also be able to get access to our weekly update webinars that we hold live every Monday at noon. And uh, the replay is also posted there. So I would encourage you to go get the Your RLA app. Uh, You can get access to everything we do. It is free. And uh, you can download it to your smartphone or computer at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You know, if you take a look at what's going on in the economy, depending on which news story you read, maybe more accurately stated, which news story you can believe, we have a tale of two economies. You know, there is a positive spin being put on initial unemployment claims that are falling from prior levels. The Wall Street Journal reported that new unemployment claims were 884,000, which means that 884,000 people filed for unemployment claims for the first time. Now, claims have fallen since hitting a peak of about 7 million in March, and the 7 million number is just hard to imagine, hard to get your arms around. But 884,000 is still way above the record going into this year at of 695,000. So while certainly there is improvement and a lot of pundits are pointing to improvement, this is still far from a healthy job market. So there you have a tale of two economies. And then we move on to housing. There's two stories here as well, two distinctly different narratives. The first story has 32% of all Americans delinquent on their mortgage or rent at the beginning of August. CNBC ran a story that said almost one-third of households, 32%, owed money for missed rent or mortgage payments from the prior month at the beginning of August. Now, I haven't seen any numbers that have been updated since that time, but we all know that at the end of July, the extra $600 per week federal unemployment benefit was reduced. So one can only expect that those numbers are going to continue to rise. 
In fact, I have predicted that 20% of all outstanding mortgages could end up delinquent. And it seems like that forecast may unfortunately be on track because according to Black Knight, which is a mortgage technology and data firm, 7% of all active mortgages are in government or private sector mortgage forbearance programs. Now that 7% in terms of real numbers amounts to 3.7 million mortgages. Well, 2 million of these mortgages will have the forbearance programs expire at the end of this month, at the end of September. CoreLogic reported that the number of seriously delinquent mortgages, which a seriously delinquent mortgage is defined as a mortgage that is more than 90 days past due, the number of seriously delinquent mortgages, mortgages with payments more than 90 days past due, doubled from May to June, doubled in just one month. So if you're looking at that story, you have to say that that doesn't look too promising, but there is another narrative here. When you read some news stories, you read that houses are selling like hotcakes. Now this is due to a couple reasons. One, uh, people are migrating from the cities to suburban and rural areas in record numbers. And secondly, interest rates are also at all-time lows. In fact, Freddie Mac uh, recently did a primary mortgage market survey and found that the average rate on a 30-year fixed interest mortgage was 2.86%, and on a 15-year mortgage, the average rate for a fixed mortgage amortized over 15 years was 2.37%. Now, these low interest rates are certainly driving home sales. Cheryl Young, who is a senior economist at Zillow, said that home sales are currently stronger than they were pre-pandemic, and they are showing no signs of slowing. She said that demand is being fueled by low mortgage rates. And we're also seeing deferred home buying as the economy and housing market pressed pause in the spring. So she's stating that there was some pent-up demand and interest rates are low, both of which I would agree are accurate. So you've got extremes in the housing market. Zero Hedge noted this. The U.S. housing market is reflecting the extremes of the economy right now. Between those who can't make ends meet due to the pandemic and those who are either still employed are sitting on a pile of equity or both. At one end of the spectrum, you've got affluent borrowers locking in record low rates while mortgage originations reached a record, get this, $1.1 trillion in the second quarter. That's according to Bloomberg. Now, Zero Hedge also pointed out something that I will talk about with my guest Michael Pinto in the next segment, and that is that it is easier now than ever to get a low-equity loan. In fact, it's easier than it was prior to 
the real estate market collapsed at the time of the financial crisis about a dozen years ago. Right now, the average loan to purchase price is more than 90%. It's actually approaching 95%. So think about it. You can go get a 30-year fixed interest mortgage for less than a 3% interest rate, and you can put less than 10% down. Do you think that is a recipe for a bubble? That's a textbook example of a bubble. When you look at the average down payment made back in 2007, it was about 5% lower, or 5% more equity, I should say, in the loan then than it was now, and interest rates were higher. So we have another housing bubble in my view, but this time on steroids. And you're starting to see evidence that these lending practices are now coming back to bite the banks again. Zero Hedge had this to say while reporting that $1.1 trillion of mortgage originations occurred in the second quarter of this year, they also reported that mortgage delinquencies are up 450% from pre-pandemic levels. They noted that about 2.25 million mortgages were at least 90 days past due in late July, and that confirms the core logic numbers that I quoted earlier. Now, I'd like to throw something else out there. A fact that many analysts may be missing is that many homeowners who are employed and who have equity in their homes might be refinancing to get access to cash. After all, in an uncertain economic environment, having some cash can feel pretty good. So I think a lot of people are loading up on liquidity and certainly paying down consumer debt, as we have reported here on the program. Now, if you're just joining us, I'd like to encourage you to go to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app. Uh, get the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app. You can do that at the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website. Uh, the web address is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And also this month, if you'd like to get a copy of the best-selling book, Revenue Sourcing, the Retirement Planning Strategy for the Post-Pandemic Economy, you can go to revenuesourcingbook.com and request your free copy. That's revenuesourcingbook.com to get your free copy of the book that will outline for you a strategy that you may want to strongly consider in today's environment. All you have to do is let us know where to mail the book, and we will be glad to send it to you. So again, the website to get the book, revenuesourcingbook.com. I'll be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is returning guest, Michael Pento. Uh, Mr. Pento is the president and founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies, I would encourage you to check out his website and his work at pentoport.com. That's P-E-N-T-O-P-O-R-T, pentoport.com. Michael, welcome back to the program. So good to be with you once again, Dennis. So 
Let's, there's, there's so many things we can talk about, Michael, but let me start by getting your take on the Fed's recent decision to change the way they monitor inflation. Can you explain to the listeners your take and then how they might be affected? Well, we only have 12 minutes, so we're going to have, we have a lot of trouble. <laughs> i got to be honest with you. So let's say the most of the time that the Fed had its asinine 2% inflation target, it was unable to achieve it. You know, in the wake of the Great Recession, couldn't get to two percent the way they measure it. If they measured it correctly, it would probably be closer to eight percent, because you know they don't measure home prices accurately, and they they completely omit asset prices in general, bonds and stocks. So uh, we were already way above two percent, but the Fed couldn't get to two percent on the core PCE deflator. So then they decide by fiat or decree to now allow inflation to run above two percent say 2.5%, for the same duration that it was below 2%, so say about seven years. Um, well, that should scare the crap out of everybody listening to this, because if if they measure inflation at 2.5% on the core PCE deflator, it'll be north of double digits in reality. Uh, but they have no way of getting there, really, to be honest with you. So a little bit of solace in that, little you know, that's a mollifying effect, because um, to be honest with you, um, the Fed is going to need to monetize trillions of dollars worth of treasury debt, new treasury debt. And we only, I'll put only in quote, we had 3.3 trillion this year, but next year the deficit is only going to go maybe say about two, $2.1 trillion. So you need an, in a second derivative basis, an increasing amount of deficits to get your inflation higher than it, what it is currently. So they're going to have a lot of trouble get there, getting there unless we have uh, a, an agreement in D.C., amongst all parties, to adopt perpetual universal basic income. That's a real risk. And then they'll have no trouble getting to you know 4% core PCE deflator. And then watch out. That's when the real poop hits the fan. So, Michael, when you look at just let's focus on deficits for a minute. And, and you used a number of uh, north of $3 trillion. I mean, we're approaching banana republic territory here, aren't we? Where where deficits are are approaching tax revenues, and what's the ultimate end game here? I mean, does there have to be a currency reset? How do you see this playing out? Well, first of all, we, if you look at deficits right now, three point three trillion. That's not me. That's the CBO prediction for for fiscal two thousand twenty. We only have one more month left, and we're already above three trillion. So we have one more month adding to that. So we have the, the deficit for September that's adding to the over $3 trillion already. We'll be around $3.3 trillion fiscal 2020. What I find most, most shocking about this is that if you look at the debt right now as in relation to our revenue, we're at 975% of our revenue. So the debt as a percentage of the revenue. Revenue is about $2.8 trillion. And the, and the deficit right now, I think we're at 20, almost $27 trillion in, in the national debt, including intergovernmental debt. So, I mean, the debt, we're an insolvent nation. We're a banana republic. And if you look at the, the, like you said, the deficit, look at the deficit as a percentage of GDP, talking about close to 20%. This is something that you would see in, in a banana republic. And the fact that you have your deficit as a percentage of revenue, your, sorry, your debt <clears throat> as a percentage of revenue being close to a thousand percent, and then you're adding to that debt at the tune to the tune of twenty percent per annum. You you can never pay this back. So you're going to have, 
and I say you're going, you are already defaulting on your debt massively through inflation. Eventually, when they get their inflation, that's when the real problems start in this country. And there will be an eventual reset of this debt, which is an honest to goodness restructuring or an explicit default on this debt. That is coming after the Fed's hyperinflation fails. So, Michael, it seems that, you know, the, the powers that be, the policymakers know that there, there's really two options here. They, they keep creating money, at which point we have an inflationary outcome, or they stop, at which point, at least my opinion would be, we have a significant deflationary outcome. We don't have a good outcome here, so why would they opt for a hyperinflationary outcome other than maybe it's just further down the road? Well, they have no choice. I mean, l- listen, if you if you have um, pension plans, this is, this, is, this is the scenario right now. If you have a pension plan that has to make 7 8% per annum in the stock market just to satisfy their obligations. What happens if you have t- several years where you have no increase in the stock market and you have nothing derived from bonds? There's no income in the bond market either. So you're going to have massive defaults. I mean, there aren't uh, this nation's entire public and private pension system is hoping for a perpetual rise in asset prices from here to the tune of 7 8% per annum. You can't get that's you know that you can't get there by normal means by a normally functioning economy. That's we we've crossed the Rubicon with that. So that is why you have central banks around the planet adopting this 2% and now 2% plus inflation target. They need to keep and prop up asset bubbles perpetually. And that's the real danger because once they get inflation, like I said, once they get inflation, remember this, Dennis, inflation is something that the central banks of this world cannot easily manage. They find it very difficult to get to their inflation targets. And when they get there, inflation does not just stop on a dime. It continues to go higher. Look at this country in the late 70s and early 80s. We had inflation running at 15%. Nobody wanted 15% inflation. It just got there because inflation is about the faith of the people in their purchasing power of the fiat currency that they're using. And when that starts to fail, you just can't turn that around on a dime. You have to do something very dramatic, like Mr. Volcker raising the Fed funds rate to 20%. Well, imagine what the, the Fed funds rate at even... 2% would do to the stock market and the real estate market. We're at zero. Imagine what would happen if some central banker in the near future had to take the Fed funds rate to the mid or upper single digits. Forget about 20%. What would happen to the real estate market? What would happen to the stock market? What would happen to the high-yield junk bond market? Think about the carnage out there because if you think about the bad recession that we had in the early 80s, debt and asset bubbles were nothing compared to where they are now. So, Michael, do you have a forecast on where ultimately inflation could end up? I've interviewed uh, John Williams. I'm sure you're familiar with his work at Shadow Stats. Shadow Stats, yep. Yeah, and he says that, you know, we're, we're going to see a, a hyperinflationary depression and that, uh, you know, double-digit inflation is uh, a virtual certainty. What would your take be? Well, I think short-term, my model says we're in for disinflation and recession, in the short term, because if you look at the fact that 
we have a massive fiscal and monetary cliff that we're in the middle of going over right now as we speak. So um, you remember back in um, the wake of the Great Recession under Ben Bernanke, the Fed was monetizing $85 billion a month of debt. Well, after the breakout of the Wuhan virus, the Fed was monetizing $750 billion worth of debt every month. That is why earlier this year, say from around April to June, I was hedged in the portfolio for stagflation. I was hedged against stagflation. Slow, slow, uh, uh, at least you know, gr- growth, a little bit of growth, not much, but a little bit of growth, but inflation as well. And I, I got that correct. Now, what you see is that the fiscal authorities have not approved any more stimulus, which is, I think is a very good thing for the most part, um, because we need to, we, some, at some time, even though it's painful, we have to live in reality. You know, I'm not callous of, of the real pain that's going on in this country in, in many places, but there's a difference between a safety net and paying people more than they made when they were employed. So let's, just, let's just all agree on that, I hope. But not only that, if you go from a Fed's balance sheet that was monetizing debt to the tune of $750 billion a month, and now the balance sheet is uh, shrinking. It has shrunk by $100 billion in the last month. So that is a huge change in the amount of fiscal and monetary support that is under the economy, and especially for the stock market. So I'm very cautious from now going into the election. After that, though, Dan, after that, I think there's an after this next round of deflation or disinflation uh, takes hold, and depending on the results of the election, there is a very good chance, like I said, that you adopt universal basic income here in the United States. To and this could be, if you look at some of the proposals from the Democrats, north of a hundred thousand dollars a year, hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, to be exact, of UBI for most American families. And if you pay Americans to lay fallow, do nothing, and collect checks and spend money, you you will create an environment of intractable inflation for sure. And that is when your inflation and insolvency implosion of the bond market occurs. Michael, we've got about a minute left in this segment. How do you see the November elections playing out if you dare to be so bold? Chaotic. Uh, chaotically is my is is the one word answer. Um, I, I foresee, and I've been predicting this for uh, the last few months, that there will be no clear winner on November 3rd announced. And that's primarily because you have these uh, uh, inordinate amount of mail-in ballots that must be um, counted. So you, what you might see is a, um, a Republican victory declared on election night or, for, or at least forecasted. And then once the mail-in ballots are collected, you'll see it go to the Democrats, perhaps. This is my guess. But in either case, Dennis, you might not have a clear winner declared for several days or even a few weeks after the election. And that is chaos like we've never seen before around an election in the United States. So the seamless transmission of power, um, you can forget about that in November. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. According to the clock, uh, my guest today is Mr. Michael Pento. His website is pentoport.com. I would encourage you to check it out. I will be back and continue my conversation with Michael when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I'm chatting today 
with the founder and president of Pento Portfolio Strategies, uh, Mr. Michael Pento. Uh, you've probably seen Michael as a frequent commentator on many different uh, uh, television programs, and uh, we're glad to have him back today. And, Michael, I'd like to go back and, and revisit something that we uh, talked about in the first segment, and that is that you know, you, you, this, this monetary policy being pursued by the Fed has been bullish for stocks, bullish for housing. And, you know, I read a statistic this past week that uh, I think the average loan to purchase price on a, on a new home is like over 90%, which is bigger than anything we saw back prior to the housing collapse. And you've got 30-year mortgages now under 3%. Isn't this a recipe for another crash? Well, we've learned so much from the last crisis, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah I, I'm really concerned, Dennis, about the banking system. You know, everybody says the banking system is very well capitalized. Well, not really. They're loaded with treasuries and they're loaded, especially in the shadow bank, end of it with corporate debt. And there has been, even before the pandemic hit, an explosion of corporate debt, business debt. It, it was at a record as a percentage of GDP. And we've added to the amount of corporate debt at a record pace this year. So you have a record amount of debt, a record amount of zombie companies that are using this debt to stay afloat. And this is the key. Once interest rates rise, and they will eventually rise, you cannot fight the free market forever. The free market in debt will finally win. And once these interest rates start to run attractively higher, you're going to ha have a massive wipeout of the banking system. I just want to say this to you. Just one statistic. So back in the in the um, housing crisis, there was about one and a half trillion dollars of subprime mortgage debt. Well, we have over seven trillion dollars worth of junk bonds and collateralized loan obligations and triple B debt now that is in, in great danger. So the, the danger that we have, yes, we do have a shadow and echo bubble. In the real estate market, you've nailed that exactly. But you have to add to that bubble the record amount of um, insolvent debt in the corporate bond market and the record valuation of equities as a percentage of underlying GDP. We're now, we now have a valuation of equities that are 180% of the underlying economy. That has never before been even remotely close to being seen. Even in March of 2000, that ratio was around 145, 150. So you have a triumvirate of bubbles like we've never seen before. And what's holding all these bubbles together is perpetually low interest rates that are virtually, you know, virtually zero. And then you have all this insolvent debt being held together by a central banker who wants to destroy it by pursuing relentlessly higher and higher inflation. Oh, boy. I mean, this is, it's ineffable, the disaster that's coming. It's very hard to, to explain to people, get them to realize the absolute carnage that's being built in the system right now by our central bank and our government. So, Michael, somebody listening to this who has uh, a nest egg, they have a 401k, they have an IRA, they've got a an investment portfolio, and they're they're going to rely or they're planning on relying on that portfolio for uh, a comfortable retirement. And they hear your forecast and it's downright scary. What kind of advice um, would you give that person? And what are you telling your clients? Well, first of all, 
it's very important to forget about the 60-40 traditional portfolio on Wall Street. You know, both assets, both stocks and bonds are in a massive bubble. So you think about in a normal crash, say, let's just say that the 10-year note was yielding close to 5 or 6%. And then if the market was to crash 30, 40, 50%, like it's done numerous times in the past, well, then the bond yields would go down to, say, 3%. And the bond prices, of course, would would increase dramatically from there. So you would make you would offset pretty much all of the losses in your stock portfolio with your bond holdings. Well, that doesn't work anymore. So if we have another recession, depression, where stocks lose 30% in a matter of weeks, or if we have a, a, an 87 crash, you know, 1987 crash where stocks lose, you know, 23%, well, they can't lose that much in one day, but they can lose it over a course of a few days now because of the circuit breakers. Um, or we have uh, something we had like in the year 2000 to 2002, where the, the NASDAQ loses 80 plus percent of its value. Well, you could say, well, uh, hopefully my bond exposure will offset that loss. But no, when the 10-year note's yielding about 0.6%, 0.6%, even if rates went all the way to zero, you're only going to make about 5 or 6% to offset your 80% loss in your NASDAQ, you know, your, your, your um, alphabet holdings and your, and your uh, Apple holdings. You know, by the way, speaking of the overvalued stock market, Earlier, I, I was uh, doing some calculations, and the the price of Apple now is greater. The market cap of Apple is, Apple is greater than the valuation of the entire FTSE 100 in the United Kingdom, and also greater than the Russell 2000. One stock, one stock. So what I'm telling my clients is that the ordinary 60/40 dollar cost averaging, passively managed portfolio. That's the key. Passively managed portfolio is done. You must have an actively managed strategy. And, and this is going to sound self-serving, but that's what I've done with my working career. I've developed a model called the inflation, deflation, and economic cycle model. And it would it is built to do is allow investors to hopefully safely participate in the incredibly dangerous and and uh, scary bubble that we're in with hedges and with ballasts in the portfolio. But most importantly, identify through that model when it's time to get out. And in that way, we can not only protect from these big downsides, but we also attempt to profit from the downsides as well. That's what is absolutely imperative. If you want to maintain your standard of living and your purchasing power, and I, I, I hope I don't sound hyperbolic, Dennis, but what we've seen, I mean, you know, I guess, you know, maybe a few years ago, I might have sounded like someone who's a Cassandra, but what, people now have lived through this. They've lived through this chaos. They, let's just think about this, Dennis. Let's just say we went back to before the Great Recession, so 2005, 2006, and all the way almost to the end of 2007. Did you ever believe that our central bank would be buying junk bonds? Would anybody believe that the central bank would be buying $85 billion a month of corporate debt and treasury bonds? No, they would never believe that was the case. And then you fast forward to the, the pandemic. Did anybody ever believe that the central bank would be buying 
three quarters of a trillion dollars of debt a month. <laughs> this is this is banana republic on steroids. But it happened. So people are viscerally becoming aware of the tenuous and absolutely unprecedented conditions extent in the in the market today. So, Michael, what is your forecast for the precious metals market? It's, you know, inevitably, if we have massive inflation, uh, tangible assets have been, uh, historically speaking, a, a great inflation hedge. What's your position? Well, uh, well, let's look at the, what I think about when it comes to precious metals. So I look at the direction of the dollar and the direction primarily of real interest rates. So I've, I believe the gold market would love to see, because we have a, a, a wonderful rally, and gold has been a part of my portfolio this entire year. I added on to it after we exited the um, the panic of the treasury market in March, you know, when the move index spiked and you saw uh, rates go, you know, through the roof uh, on a short-term basis, which is which is something was called a liquidity crisis, and gold wasn't like that. But after we had uh, Powell come in and and to make everything quiescent, I did double down on that, my exposure to gold. Had a, has a wonderful year uh, so far. But what gold would really like to see now is the central bank of the United States cap long-term interest rates. And given the amount of debt and deficits that we have to continuously issue and roll over, um, I think that would be, you know, a rocket fuel for the precious metal. So, you know, we, we have a meeting today and tomorrow. Tomorrow's the announcement. I would like to see Chair Powell, if I was a precious metal uh, bull, to at least uh, intimate that he's heading towards capping the interest rate on the upper end on, and on the long end of the yield curve. But and let me just expand on that a little bit. What that would do is that would mean okay, here's your cap on nominal rates. Say the Fed would say we will not let interest rates on the ten-year note go above one and a half percent. I don't know the exact number, but but then if he engenders inflation above two percent, that would guarantee that your real interest rates would be negative for a very long time. And of course, and you turn to the dollar, which is the other uh, side of the ledger. Um, the interest rate differentials that the in United States, the positive interest rate differentials that we enjoyed in the United States are now over vis-a-vis -vis other nations. So we don't have better growth than what's ex extent in Europe or in Asia. We don't have the, the incredible yield differential. So there's pressure on the dollar both from those two functions and the fact that it's losing its status as the world's reserve currency. Um, because of trust issues. Um, and then you have the possibility of capping long-term nominal rates. So those two things together would be rocket fuel from gold, even from these very high levels. Well, the clock tells me that we need to leave it there. My guest today has been uh, Mr. Michael Pento. Uh, Michael is the president and founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies. His website is pentoport.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. And, uh, Michael, real pleasure to catch up with you again today. Love to have you back again down the road. That would be my pleasure, Dennis. We will return after these words. Welcome back to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks again to Mr. Michael Pento for joining us on today's program. You know, there is no doubt that we are in a recession. But this recession 
is a lot different than past recessions. And in this segment, I'd like to have you consider something with me. And then, if you have not yet already done so, I will tell you how you can get a complimentary copy of the Revenue Sourcing book, which was a number one Amazon bestseller in four categories earlier this year. And it provides a retirement planning strategy for today's economy. If you go all the way back to 1959 and you look at all the recessions that have occurred in the United States, there have been eight official recessions since 1959. Now, in every prior recession, personal incomes have fallen. There has never been a case during a recession that personal incomes have gone up until this time. Jim Reed, who is an analyst at Deutsche Bank, said that this is simply an aberration. Now, why have personal incomes gone up during this recession? Well, there's only one reason, and that is the government has provided unprecedented support to the newly unemployed through the increased unemployment benefits. Now, of course, they are funding these new and very generous unemployment benefits through newly created currency. Now, however, we have seen these benefits, although still generous, start to be scaled back. So we had this aberration, if you will. We had a recession that really was brought about due to the COVID-19 lockdowns. And we had unprecedented government support, which created this illusion of prosperity. But now it seems that that illusion of prosperity may be coming to an end. Bank of America recently noted that absent government support, disposable income would have fallen the most in history. However, with that support, disposable income has risen the most in history. So the question is, and it's a very pregnant question, where do we go from here economically speaking? Well, the Peterson Institute did a study which assumed there were 20 million people who were unemployed at the end of July. They also assumed that the $600 federal unemployment benefit has a fiscal multiplier of one and a half. In other words, as that money is given directly to the unemployed and they spend it, it multiplies as it moves through the economy. So based on that 1.5 multiplier assumption, about $50 billion in monthly income will be removed from the economy each month. Now what that means is, when looking at the big picture, that the gross domestic product of the United States will drop about 2.5%. That is significant. And it also means, according to the Peterson Institute, 2 million fewer jobs over the next year 
and a 1.2% increase in the unemployment rate. Now, Bank of America Bank of America commented also that these numbers are probably conservative and the reality will likely be more severe. Now, Forbes recently reported, and I touched on this in the first segment of today's program, Forbes recently reported that we are already seeing significant fallout from this with first-time homebuyers. The mortgage delinquency rate on, on FHA loans, which are typically used by first-time homebuyers, is now over 15%. I noted in the first segment that I'm expecting overall that we could see a delinquency rate on mortgages of approaching 20%. We're almost there on FHA loans. Now, at the time, these extra government benefits to the unemployed are being pared back, we are seeing inflation in many parts of the economy. If you've been to the grocery store lately, you know this is true. We are seeing food price inflation, and while many analysts would like to attribute this increase in prices to supply chain interruptions, and that can be true to a certain extent, and that is true to a certain extent, I happen to be of the opinion that much of the blame for higher food prices can be attributed to Fed policies. And now, as we have reported, the Fed has decided that they're going to let inflation run a little bit hotter. I talked about this uh, during my interview with Mr. Pento today. Now, food price inflation, according to Trading Economics, increased 3.5% in April year over year. So food prices in April of 2020, when compared to food prices in April of 2019, went up 3.5%. 4% increase in May as compared to the prior May, 4.5% in June, and 4.1% in July. If you compound that, that is significant. Now, should these trends continue, and I believe that they will, it will be another huge drag on the economy. Now, something to keep in mind is that food and fuel prices are not included in the official calculation, the Consumer Price Index calculation, to determine what the official or officially reported inflation rate is. Now, if you can remember the 70s, and you'd probably have to be pretty old to remember this, but you probably know somebody who remembers this, we had double-digit inflation in the 70s, and back in the 70s, food was included in the calculation to determine what the officially reported inflation rate is. So if you were to include food prices, if you were to include some of the changes that have been made to the CPI calculation, we would currently have an inflation rate that would officially be in the 8 to 10% range. And as I referenced in an earlier segment uh, on today's program with, with Michael Pento, Mr. John Williams of Shadow Stats does a really nice job of tracking what the inflation rate is when using those methodologies that were used pre-1980. 
Now, as I talked about at the beginning of this segment, if you've not yet gotten the revenue sourcing book, which contains the retirement planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy, I would encourage you to get a copy by visiting revenuesourcingbook.com. We'll be glad to send you a free copy. Just let us know where to mail it and we will get it out to you. Also, if you don't have the Your RLA app yet, go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and download the app. That will give you access to the podcast, to our webinars, and to our weekly newsletter. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back here again next week.